Alice had been lonely ever since her husband had died 15 years before. All her children had grown up and left the house. Even her youngest, Chris, was more than 300 miles away working as an architect. Alice had been retired for the last two years, and while she had plenty of friends and a good social life, something was missing. One day a friend of hers suggested she tried online dating. It was fun. What's the cause of happiness? And you're only as old as you think. She got quickly speaking to a man called David online, and the two struck up a bond. They emailed every night, and it gave Alice something to look forward to every day. Eventually, they started to talk on the phone, and Alice knew he was the real deal. She really wanted to meet him, and the photos he had sent were really handsome. Even better, he had recently come into a load of money from a dead relative in New Zealand, which he was just waiting to clear. But there was a problem as David lived an hour away, and the day before he was supposed to visit, his car broke down. David said he would come visit as soon as he could as he was looking forward to it, but the bill for the car was £350 and he didn't know where he'd get that money. They'd just have to wait for the New Zealand money to clear. But Alice thought, sure, I'll lend him the money for now and he can pay me back when he gets his money. David thanked her, but he didn't think it was a good idea to take her money, but the more he said no, the more Alice wanted to give him the money. So she wired on the money, David thanked her, and said they'd soon meet. A few days later, David came back with another delay. His mechanic had discovered another problem with his car, and he needed an additional £175. Surely Alice could help him again? Alice thought to herself, could she afford it? She could just about manage it. After all, what was the cost of happiness? Hello, my name's Luke, and welcome to Scapegoat, the podcast where we see who gets the blame and who gets away with murder. If you were Alice, what would you do in this situation? Would you bank on love, or love the money that's still in your bank? If she sends the money to David, what do you think will happen next? Will they meet and live happily ever after? Unfortunately, no, there is no David. David's just a fake online profile designed to scam vulnerable people looking for love. These romance scams are increasingly common, with people losing... $143 million last year in the United States alone to these. For this episode of Scapegoat, we're going to look at these common scams and tricks and how to avoid them. From junk mail to catfishing, we'll look at the people who scam the scammers and how to avoid these. Welcome to Scapegoat. So before we start today, I think it's important to look at what a scam is. A scam is an illegal or dishonest plan to make money especially one that involves tricking people. So while not all scams are illegal, most will attempt to hoodwink or bamboozle people into giving up their money. So an example of an illegal scam is, I somehow trick you into giving me your credit card information, then I use it on Amazon to buy myself nice things. An example of a legal scam would be, for instance, if I use this podcast to say, oh hey guys, if you want to ask a question live on the show, ring up the space code hotline then i give like a number which is like an 0900 number which costs you nine pounds per minute so someone's saying like hello i would just like to ask you something simple but like you know four people ring in and i get 36 pounds would be legal but it would be like really taking advantage of people's trust so you should be super careful of that so we're going to talk about different kinds of scams out there so the first one is psychics or clairvoyance so You probably know what a psychic is. It's someone who claims that they've got powers to mind read or a clairvoyant can contact the dead. So these are people with so-called powers. 
they tend to contact people like on the phone, via mail, or even in person. They'll tell things to try and get you roped in. For instance, like you're coming across a great fortune, you're coming across good luck, or you're in terrible danger. So if you speak to one of these psychics, they'll try and convince you that they have legitimate powers. And they'll do this by trying to give different information to you about yourself, just to show this is how powerful I am. So generally, a simple one that you could give is like, you're generally a positive person who feels happy, but sometimes you feel sad, or sometimes you feel worried about money. So like, you know, if you say it in a spooky enough way, it kind of sounds deep, but you know, if you think it to yourself, hmm, a person who's normally feels happy, but sometimes sad, that describes for like 80% of people's, you know, it's a general good catch all thing to trick people into thinking this person knows more about me than they actually do. Another way information can be divulged is via cold reading, which is done by magicians, mediums, or scam artists to imply the reader knows much more about the person than the reader actually does. So without prior information, a practice cold reader can obtain information generally by saying like, I'll look at this person's body language, clothing, fashion, hairstyle, gender, orientation, religion, ethnicity, education, manner of speech, place of origins. And I think I could tell them something about themselves. So someone could look at me and say, hmm, this guy's Irish. What are popular names in Ireland? Okay, Patrick and Mary. So you choose one of those and you could say, Luke, I am hearing a voice from the grave. It's someone whose name begins with P. Is it a Patrick? And I'd be like, wow, yes, there is someone in my family who is dead and called Patrick. This is amazing. And like, you know, the same as going to like, you know, the Islamic world and saying, oh, there's someone contacting you. His name is Muhammad. Is he someone in your family? And you'd be like, yeah, no doubt. There's someone in someone's family called Muhammad. So, you know, generally it's a good way to trick people into thinking like you know them. And finally, the most lazy way, but it can be extremely effective, is you can just tell someone straight off, your birthday is August 5th, or you broke your leg on holiday in Turkey last year. And people are like, wow, how does people know this really specific information that you could find on my Facebook or Twitter really easily because I do not have it privated. And all they have to do is look up my name, go down my timeline a bit and say, Melissa, last Tuesday you baked muffins 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 so doubtless not by this point they've probably got your attention which is what they wanted so they'll probably tell you look you've got a good luck coming to you if you get this good luck bracelet or if you buy this totem it will remove a curse from your house no more bad luck without this you will never reach your full potential so for 50 pounds it's worth it right now, if you send them the money, there's a good chance you won't receive anything or ever hear back from them again. And if you do, you'll probably get something cheap and like, you know, made in China, like a plastic bangle, rather than something hand-woven by some blind Bulgarian farseer, as you had imagined. Equally, like, if you pay them to do something like an incantation or a blessing, they'll say, oh, I have to do this alone, so no one can hear this, only the spirits. And you're like, okay, that sounds spooky enough. And in all likelihood, they're not even lifting a finger. They're not even pretending to do this spell. They're just like, sucker. Finally, if they contact you telling you that you're going to come across a great fortune, like 
if you want those lotto numbers, you've got to pay me. TikTok, the lotto draws on Wednesday. If you don't pay me by then, I won't tell you the numbers to make you a millionaire. Just think about it kind of logically. That if they could find the numbers themselves, wouldn't they claim the lottery wins rather than asking like Steve from Bristol for £250 for like offering these numbers? Like a million versus £250. Now, I know in all likelihood they'll claim like some spooky thing that's like, oh, I would lose my powers if I ever claimed the money myself or something equally spooky or mystical, but don't believe it for a second. The horrible thing is, if you give in to a scam like this, the people will sell on your details to other scammers and you'll be getting unwanted contact from people all over the world for the next couple of years because they'll see you as a real rube, someone that they could trick. You know, you buy one good luck bracelet and then suddenly somebody's saying like, oh hey, do you want to buy some beautiful beachfront property in like Malaysia? And you're like, what? Now, the profile for people most vulnerable for this crime are women aged 45 and over. However, it can affect anyone at any time of their life. So the second kind of scam is a romance scam, as I mentioned with our example of Alice earlier. For this, the scammer tends to target people on dating websites like Tinder, Plenty of Fish, OkCupid, as well on social media, i.e. slipping into your DMs, and in emails. So this tends to happen to women more than men, and the majority happen to people over the age of 45. The way the scammers do this is they create a fake profile for themselves with a fake picture and an identity to trick the victims into thinking they're someone that they're not. Occasionally they'll actually steal someone's real profile, so they'll say, oh, Look at that guy, Steve from Austin, Texas, seems like a nice guy. I'll pretend to be him. And this is known as catfishing. So, like, you're tricking people into thinking you're someone that you're not. So due to this, scammers do not ever want to meet their victims as it would reveal their fraud. So if a lady thought she was talking to a six-foot-six guy called Duncan and the guy who turned up was called Alistair and was, like, five-foot-nine, I think she'd know the jig was up. To cover the fact, the scammer can never meet their victim and will often claim to be living very far away or potentially even living abroad with a respectable job like a member of the armed forces, an aid worker, an oil worker or another high paying career. So, you know, people say, oh, he doesn't live here, but like he's doing God's work. Oh, what a hero. Scammers will quickly try and bond with their victim and basically use strong emotional statements to try and build a relationship as fast as they can and try and get the victim to reciprocate. So it's like, I really like you. You're special. You know, you, I think I love you after like talking to them for two days. And then you're like, eh, this is guys coming on a bit strong. It's not like these guys are practice. It's not going to be that fast. But like, again, you know, you're talking to someone you don't really know and it's heightened emotions. A little bit odd. So they'll do whatever they can to build up trust, sharing a lot of personal information, giving their life story, and trying to suck the victim in by doing things like even sharing gifts. So the person thinks, oh, big tall Duncan. Oh, he's such a hunk. He's such a nice guy. Once they feel your defenses is down, they'll move forward with a point and they'll ask you to do something you normally wouldn't do with a stranger online, such as send them money due to a hard luck story or get you to send them videos or pictures of yourself in a compromised situation. 
if you send one of these people money, chances are they will keep coming back as long as they feel they can keep getting more and more out of you. There's something called the sunk cost fallacy, which happens when people invest into something and, you know, once they are invested, they can't uninvest. So, like, financially, it'd be the idea that you bought a £200 keyboard for a Mac six months ago and then your computer breaks and you feel you need to buy a $1,000 Apple computer to justify this when a $300, like, Windows would do the exact same work. You don't need it, but, dude, you bought a $100 keyboard you kind of have to justify it. Same thing happens if you invest, for instance, in a beautiful babe on online dating. You've given her £750, and unfortunately she couldn't meet you due to problems, but if you give her another 100 maybe she'll meet you this time, and she might even pay you back. As for pictures in a compromised position, if you send those, like your new e-boyfriend will probably ask you for a lot of money, or will send them to all your Facebook friends slash employer. They'll probably ask you even to double down and send them more pictures. So it would be recommended for people online to never send these kinds of pictures to a stranger. But if you absolutely must, make sure your face or any identified features such as tattoos are not in any shots that you send to people online. Because blackmail will be a horrible position to be in. So the third kind of scam is known as an unexpected winning scam, sometimes known as a Spanish lottery. The victim receives an email, a letter, a phone call, or most common nowadays, a text message telling them great news. They've won a huge amount of money in a competition or lottery draw that they never remember entering, but free money's free money, who's complaining? So the prize will generally be a large sum of cash, but you can also win a mobile phone, a computer, a free holiday, or tickets to a sporting event. I mean, like, even if you won tickets to a sporting event of a sport that you don't support, you would probably just be like, all expenses paid trip to here. Sure, I will watch the Brazilian Ice Roller Derby Championship final, sure. Now that you've been told that you've won your prize, you're told you'd better move quick. If you don't claim it now, you'll lose the prize forever. And you'll generally be told a reason like, oh, uh, you have to claim the prize in 90 days, and it's 88 days since the draw, so... If you don't act in the next two days, you'll lose your prize forever. So it's people just heightening the stakes to try and get you to make a rash decision. And there's different ways different scams will want you to act. So for instance, some scammers will want their victims to give out their names, addresses, birthdays, postcodes and more. And just they'll use this information once you've given it to like steal money from your bank by like stealing your identity. Or even stealing your identity in a different way to set up a credit card and making charges to you. Because, like, they know your home address. They know your name. You could get a credit card with £10,000 of a limit and make a bunch of charges. And before the person knows, they're heavily in debt. Other scammers will sometimes just ask for a direct fee to release the money. Such as, like, a lowly £1,000 to release millions from the Spanish lottery into your account. And this is a common transactional fee. This is always fake like at least in europe australia usa no lotteries will charge you to claim your winnings even if it's abroad so any fees like for transferring will be taken out of your winnings it's not like people will say oh you've got 15 million pounds but to get 15 million pounds you need to give me 100 
they'd be just be like, no, you'll get fourteen million nine 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 zero zero. You know, that's the way it works. They're not going to be like pedantic and say, no, but you need to pay up front, millionaire first. A third way the scam can work is they'll get you to ring a hotline number and get you to try and claim your prize on the hotline. So like you'll be charged tens of pounds per hour or euros or dollars for every minute you're on the line. So just like my scapegoat like question line that I mentioned earlier, you know, you could be spending tens of pounds an hour on something foolish. And I kind of remember this. I was taken in by one of these scams. Now it would be a legal version of this that in a newspaper there was a scratch card and it says like if you get like two of the same cards on the scratch card ring this number and learn what you won so i was just like oh, okay and you know it's just like if you got two queens you have won a lovely holiday courtesy of mnm cruises london registered boats in estonia which is going to Belarus, Tobago, Mon you know, it's like they're going as slow as as possible. And finally, when you say, okay, two sevens, two sevens, they'll be like, anyone with two sevens will get dandelion flower seeds. So you've listened to a phone call for like 10 minutes. It's finally reached this. You've been paying like five pounds an hour. It drove me crazy. It wasn't 10 minutes. Didn't cost 50 pounds, but like, Again, it costs something like £12. And you know, if you're a poor student, it isn't money you'd really want to spend. So remember, to protect yourself from this, you have to think. If you didn't enter it, you can't win it. If people ask for money up front, it's probably a scam. According to the AAAC, if you're asked to give details to a person to win a prize, it's best to not contact the person back again but look, Google the major companies. So if someone says like, okay, Microsoft is giving you this prize, instead of contacting like at Steve Jobs at Hotmail66.com, you just ring up Microsoft and say, hey, I heard that you're giving me a neat prize. Can I claim it here? And they'll be like, neat prize, what? For instance, if you get a text from Vodafone saying you've won tickets to the British Grand Prix and you ring them, they'll tell you if it's true or not. To the point that, they'll probably point out obvious errors like you're an O2 customer or like the British Grand Prix happened last week. How would you get tickets? You can easily be tricked but you can easily find out how these are by just ringing up the company and they'll tend to put you right. Also, beware of prizes offered by companies who wouldn't normally offer prizes. Like, is Facebook really likely to offer you a $1 million giveaway? They've never done it before. It doesn't really seem really for that company to be offering you so much money in a giveaway. Like I've never seen them do a giveaway, so be careful. And finally, again, never give money up front. This is the big one. For this or for any Nigerian prince whose father has died, and the only way to get money out of the country is to trust you, the Norwegian baker or a gymnast from Bisburn or a supermarket manager from the south of England. Why is a prince in Nigeria's first point of call you? And why are you their only hope? I mean, like, how? How does this work? So this scam tends to affect men more than women by quite a large margin, but it also tends to affect people over the age of 65 the most. So it spikes really above 65 that, you know, 65-year-olds tend to be taken in by this, like, lottery scam far more than younger people.
Another form of scam are mail scams. These tend to be slightly more effective than things like email scams or like text scams because people tend to see an envelope and they give it a lot more legitimacy than they would, for instance, an email that's from like Susan at Hotmail.com. I would trust it a lot less than Susan sending me a letter. And some of the letters people send are things that they call hard luck letters. So random letter sent by a person that you don't know who gives a heartbreaking story like something's happened to them. They need an operation for their grandchild or their dog has hepatitis and please send them money to help them. So these stories are normally fake and just used by fraudsters to try and trick people and pull at their heartstrings, particularly elderly people who like, you know, they'll get a letter and be like, oh, oh, this looks nice. Like this could be for my grandson. And then basically they read it and they think, Oh, that poor woman, her dog's got hepatitis and her grandson's in hospital. I better send money because the same thing could have happened to me. But like the person doesn't have a grandchild. They don't even have a dog. So, you know, they're just really preying on the elderly. Another real life version of this is someone telling you a hard luck story outside a bus station and saying like, oh, I need money to go see my dying aunt man. And like she lives in Gatlinburg my wallet was stolen and my arms got cut off by the Mujahideen and you know then I just need to get back and just see my dying aunt man did you lend me like 20 bucks and then you're just like oh you poor fellow and they're like here once I get back like and they staple my arms back on I'm gonna write you a check and send it to you and they're like oh there's no need to do that but go on go on here's my details and here's 20 bucks and then you turn around and think wait I'm Northern Irish why am I sending this guy money to get a bus to an American city? And why do I have dollars? And this entire scenario seems kind of fictional. But you kind of put it out of your mind. And then you walk past the bus station a week later. And you have the same guy telling you the exact same story. And you're just like, dude, you must be very unlucky having so many dying ants. There's a, loads of people out there who've been tricked by the platform of mail. Because, you know, again, it's really good at trying to get your attention because it arrives to your house and it looks like official. So while companies used to send out things like junk mail an awful lot, I know in some places they still do. I think locally it's become illegal where I am, so we've got very little of it. But like there used to be loads of junk mail with, like, with flashy offers and bright colours. And these were like really popular at one point and a good way for annoying businesses to gain like traction. But they became so super common that they're mostly ignored because you're like, oh, here, of my 500 pieces of junk mail, am I going to look at the five boat salesmen or the guy selling organic carrots? So companies have had to come up with new tactics to gain our attention. So many pieces of junk mail are generally just seen as scams. And the way that people will scam you is forming an envelope which looks really official like a bill or something from the government office you know a brown envelope or something that says like super important at the top like if you open this and you are not the occupant you face 25 years in a federal prison so like people are like oh my god i need to open this this is super serious and it's just like here do you want to buy pogo the clown's birthday party and you're like what Ugh. why is this an official envelope and you know They'll also use logos and labels, you know, just anything to try and grab your attention that you'll say, oh my goodness, um, this is says something about the 75th anniversary of D-Day. I care about the troops. Sure, I'll open this. And then again, Pogo's clown party. You're like, this has got nothing to do with the thing inside. 
and you get really disappointed and annoyed you don't even want the 20% off buttons that you've been offered because you know things are just getting really grim so the worst for a lot of people is when you open this like scam junk mail and you've got like a fake check in it and it's just normally to grab someone's attention I remember the first time I got a check in a letter and I was kind of excited because I had just opened it I was like oh check and then like got so many now I kind of just got used to it oh this is just like a sad advertising ploy because you know the check has the words sample in giant letters and do not cash and this is fake and please do not try and cash this and if you're a cashier and you cash this you will go to jail 100 years so it's basically a giant piece of paper which you can do nothing really with but it'll have a stupid size number saying one million dollars you seem like wow i could win this but like you will never be the actual winner it's just like a complete trick giant oversized checks but no one would fall for it i mean no bank in the world would cash it but one time this did actually happen Patrick Combs was broke at 29, like $40,000 in credit card debt broke. Although he was a published author and a motivational speaker, things were not going well for him. He had previously been a celebrated figure, helping a stranger safely give birth on the streets of San Francisco, but his buzz had worn off and he was struggling to get by. Patrick was just about breaking even on his checking account, having a maximum of about $5,000, but seriously risking being overdrawn. Patrick one day received a piece of junk mail saying he had won $95,000. Now, after listening to me talking about scams, you can doubtless guess this is a scam. And Patrick, being a reasonably smart individual, also thought this is a bit of a scam. But at the top of the letter, there was a check made out for this amount. And it was signed, it was dated, and it had a logo and it had a cashier's code. So, Patrick was a wee bit annoyed at the check. But, you know, he looked at it and he thought non-negotiable at the top. And I was like, oh, can't cash this. But it looks really real. So just in case you don't know, if non-negotiable is written on a check, it doesn't mean that, like, the bank's refusing to negotiate for it. As in, you can go into a bank and say, this is a negotiable check. It says 95000 but I want ninety nine, And they're like, no, sir, we don't think that check's actually that good. We'll offer you $90,000. No, non-negotiable just means the bank isn't allowed to accept it it's the same as writing sample it just means it's a fake check so patrick decided as a bit of a laugh he deposit the check in a nearby atm and see what would happen so he endorsed it with a smiley face and he half expected the check to immediately be rejected however it wasn't but he kind of walked away thinking oh hey actually you know whatever cashier goes through it this evening will actually probably find this quite funny so here i've done a good deed today and about five days later, he went to withdraw more money from his account. He was thinking, I'm going to ignore this bank receipt because I actually don't really want to look at it because I'm running a bit thin this month and I don't want to know how poor I am. But eventually he decided, look, I'm just going to look down at it. And I was shocked to see his balance was at $101,000. In a daze, Patrick ran home, not quite sure what to do. In fact, he was so dazed he had forgotten that he had drove there and he had to run back and pick up his car. So he had $95,000 extra in his account. And what more, he had got it from a junk mailer who had exploited the poor and ignorant, so he didn't even feel bad. However, Patrick decided to wait before touching the money, as he believed the bank would realise the error and take the money out of his account. 
I mean, it was only really a joking curiosity, and he wasn't even too sure if he wanted to spend the money. However, after three weeks, he wasn't sure what to do, so he contacted his mother and brother. His mother feared, like, the people who owned the money would just come for him and want the money back, and might potentially kill or injure him, so she said, it's not worth it, return the money. But his brother said, look, instead, if I had the money, I'd withdraw it all in cash, down to the penny, and then it would be out of the account. So the bank couldn't remove it from me. I would have that money. However, I'd put it in a safety deposit box in the same bank so I wouldn't get in trouble because the money had never actually left the bank. You're actually legally covered. And then Patrick thought, awesome, I'll follow this sound legal advice. I'm not sure how sound it is, but we'll find that out a bit later. So he decided to take the bull by the horns and he went into the bank the next day and asked was it feasible for him to withdraw the money. The manager told him simply, yes, the check hasn't bounced in 10 days, the money is legally yours, you can take as much out whenever you want. So Patrick decided like the person who owed the money deserved to find out that he had taken it. So he rang up the junk mail king, a guy called Mitch Class, and just decided he'd tell them because he didn't want scary people coming for him in the night. So he rang up and told the secretary, Hey, I managed to cash your $95,000 check. She was like, oh God, I'll go get Mitch now. And then there was silence in the line for about two minutes. And the secretary came back on, a lot less panicked, but she said, Mitch hopes that you have a nice day. Now, the way Patrick describes this, it's like, have a nice day. And it sounds like it's genuine, like, oh, I hope that guy has a nice day. Or in the mafia kind of way, I hope you have a real nice day there. Yeah, a real nice day there. And everything happens in a nice way. You know, like somebody's saying nice things, but it's kind of a fret. Or equally, like if the mafia were to say, take care of it. Here, take care of my dog for the weekend. Sure, boss. And you come back and the dog's dead. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you'd have to be super careful with this language. But... By the sounds of it, Mitch actually was just like, here, I've lost this one. You keep that $95,000. I'll keep moving forward. After doing some research, Patrick actually came to the conclusion, since the check had been accepted, it was actually completely legally as his. So he read like different banking books and he kind of came to the conclusion that there was a certain window that if the money transfers from one bank to another and the second bank doesn't realize there's a problem and bounce the check within 24 hours, the money legally becomes yours. So Patrick thought, hmm, this hasn't been called, so I'm in the clear. So he went to the bank the next week and tried to withdraw the full amount in cash. But he ran into a snag. The cashier told him it was almost impossible to withdraw that level of money in cash. The bank would have to order it four days in advance. They'd have to get an armored truck to transport it. They'd even have to tell the IRS about the transaction. So instead, the cashier suggested if he wanted to withdraw that amount of cash, he should get it in the form of a cashier's check, which was far easier to transport, could be done in two minutes, and was a bit more of a secure thing. So Patrick pretty much wrote out a check for like $95,093.53, the complete amount of money down to the penny that the junk mail kink had said him and basically just said okay i want this in a cashier's check and then he said i'll put it in the safety deposit box in the bank so he left the bank and thought look if nobody questions this for the next year i'll withdraw the check and i'll start to spend it 
A few days later, he had a trip scheduled to go from San Francisco to Boston to meet his brother and mother. And this would have been 31 days since he had cashed the initial check. So at the airport, he decided to withdraw money for the trip. But the bank machine swallowed his card and he was told to visit the local branch. But needing to catch a flight, Patrick decided, I'll ignore this. I've got enough money till I get to Boston and then I can just borrow from my mum or my brother. So, you know, it's cool till I get back. The plane left San Francisco and went to Seattle. Once it reached Seattle, he used a payphone to ring his apartment and see what was on his answering machine. And the first message was for a cashier at his local bank asking for him to ring back. And the next was the customer service manager at the bank. So he ran the head of customer service and said, what's up? And she said, are you Patrick? And he said, yes. And he said, did you know that you cashed a a non-negotiable check? And he said, yeah, I did it as a joke. And she was like, "Uh, yeah, that's real funny. But could you please come back to the bank and uh, return this money as soon as possible? And he was like, no, sorry, going off to Boston. Bye. And then at his next stop, he checked it again. And there was a message from the head of the bank's security. And he basically said, I'll ring the head of the bank's security. The head of the bank's security was a bit of a rough guy. And he just kind of rings up and says, Hey, Patrick, I'm on your case. You better fly back and immediately open the vault and give us back this money. So Patrick refused, saying, Look, no, I'm flying to Boston. I'm already like halfway across the country. I'm not flying back. I can't even afford to change my plane ticket because you've locked my account. No, I'm going to Boston. I'll deal with you when I get back. And like the security chief wasn't pleased by this. And he said like, okay, so we've got this registered security box. Is there anyone else registered to open it so they could give us the check on your behalf? And Patrick was like, no, no, it's entirely on me. Sorry, I'm the only one who can open it. So the band security officer is getting real mad and saying, can you give us permission to drill open the security box and get that cashier's check? And like, oh, this guy's real mad. And Patrick again refused, saying like, here, I will give you back the check if you give me an official letter, an official stationery, giving me a legal reason to, for you to get the check. And the bank's official refused in a way which really annoyed Patrick. He's like, you will never get that letter, ever. And he kind of threatened, like, if you come back to San Francisco, you'll be arrested. But, like, Patrick believed. The money was his, and it was due to the bank's own faulty, like, decision. And, like, while he wasn't too pushed on keeping it, there was a chance, like, he would give it back. He really didn't like the way this bank security official had treated him. He decided, nah, I'm not doing anything till you give me a piece of paper which is pretty much admitting fault and apologizing and saying the money is legally mine, but I'll give it back. When he landed in Boston, Patrick panicked a little bit and decided, look, I actually don't want to end up in jail and the people are threatening me with the police. So he went to the law library and he found a book which he had actually previously looked at for legal matters to do with the money. It was the one who had told him the one, like the midnight rule, the 24-hour rule. He looked at the back of it and said it was published by the University of Oregon. So he decided, look, rather than read this again, why don't I just contact the authors and maybe they can give me like a little bit of like information. So he contacted the university and they said, sorry, the first offer is away. Like, you know, he's on sabbatical for like six months. Sorry. And then he said, can I speak to the second offer? They said, sorry, he's retired. And he said, like, 
where's this guy, Henry Bailey, where is he retired to? And she said, I really can't tell you. I was like, oh, I bet it's nice. And then she said, oh, yes, the lakes of northern Massachusetts are awfully nice. And he said, thank you. So he just started looking for the northern Massachusetts phone book and said, H. Bailey, H. Bailey. He started ringing around till eventually he rang a house and he got the right Henry Bailey. Now, Patrick contacted Bailey and explained the situation. Initially, Bailey was not really that pleased with Patrick being like, so you've admitted you've committed check crime, huh? Why should I help you? But like he started to get interested when Patrick explained like the check had eight markers on it, such as logo, date, signature, amount of money, Patrick's name, address, zip code. And like he started to think and said, you know, they sent you a check which was legally valid. What? said Patrick. Legally valid? And he the, then Bailey pretty much explained, look, if you have eight of these pieces of information it makes anything a check so you could write a check on a napkin you could write a check on a cow and bring it to a bank like you know nothing a check is only on that piece of paper as a formality because it makes things simpler but if you wrote those numbers and information on anything and you brought it to a bank it would technically have to cash it so it doesn't actually matter if it says non-negotiable because it's got all eight markers you have a case that you should own this money and he also argued that although this is because, like, you know, this is because the bank has made the mistake of cashing the money. So it's actually not money coming out of, like, the first person's checking account. So that uh, junk mail king, he wants nothing really to do with you. He doesn't care. It's the bank who wants you. And Patrick's like, oh, the bank's chasing me. He's like, yeah, the bank really wants their money back, but you have a case for keeping the money. And at this point, I think Patrick was really starting to think, okay, I don't really want the money that much. It is mine legally, I think. But look, I just want a letter of explanation from the bank because that covers me legally. I can't go to jail. So here, would you please give me like just a form saying, look, it's your fault. You accidentally cashed the check. It was my fault for sending it in. We're both bad dudes. I get that piece of paper and then I'll give you back the check. Well, the bank kept refusing. And like, you know, the more the bank refused, the more he kind of got angry. So Patrick decided to go on a bit of a uh, publicity drive and put a little pressure on the bank with his story. So the story started as a small local one with it quickly gaining the attention of the national press. It became the front cover story of the Wall Street Journal with them very interested in how a bank messed up. And if you can imagine, if you're the like head of the 10th biggest bank in America, and like on the Wall Street Journal front cover, it's like, your bank made a huge mistake. You're not happy campers. And Patrick was soon booked onto some of America's top channels as just like different interest pieces. So if people wanted a segment, they'd be like, here's Patrick. He took money from a bank and he didn't do it illegally. So it's his money, right? And I was like, yay, you go, Patrick. And a poll on the TV show Card Copy said like over 90% of the public were supporting Patrick and thought he should keep the money. And if you take Patrick's original job was one as a motivational speaker, this much engagement with the press and good publicity was a pretty solid end game for him because like, you know, even he was thinking like, even if I don't get the money, I'm appearing on like Montel Williams, I'm appearing like with all these big people like Larry King. So like my face is known out there. So I'll be able to eat off this for the next 10 years. This is pretty awesome. But behind the scenes, the bank were trying to sue Patrick, saying 
you're not able to cash this cashier's check. This is legal. Give us it back. And like Patrick kept going back to Bailey, the law professor for reference. And the law professor said, the bank's running scared. Patrick again used the media to try and appeal for the bank to give an apology, a letter of information. And then he'd return the check. But like after milking the story throughout the summer and behind closed doors, the bank and Patrick settled on an agreement that he would return the check for an apology letter. In October, Patrick entered the bank and within 30 seconds, two guys dressed in black with guns began to flank him as he walked to the safety deposit box. Patrick was intimidated, but he went and withdrew the cashier's check. As he walked through the bank, the two men in black followed him with their hands on their hips ready to shoot. So they walked him along the street to a corporate building beside it, which was the bank's headquarters. And he took a lift up to the 37th floor to the managerial suite. Once he got there, he met the head of the bank in a boardroom alone. He turned to the head of the bank and said, have you got my letter? The head of the bank said, have you got my cashier's check? And they had a bit of a standoff of like them trying to be like, you hand this over now you hand this over and Patrick was like here if I hand over the check he's not going to give it back and I think the bank was thinking the same so they both put them on a table and they slowly like twisted them towards each other Patrick ended up with the letter and the bank ended up with the check this is pretty much the end of the story but as he was leaving the head of the bank turned to him and said like so I take it you'll be closing your account with the bank and he's Patrick said no nah, nah, I'm pretty fine with you guys it was all a joke after all and the guy said, uh, yeah, we didn't really find that funny. You're $17 overdrawn. Would you please give us this money, leave the building, and your bank account will be closed. And Patrick said, oh, okay. So he wrote a $17 check to the bank to try and pay them back. And at the very top of the check, he wrote the words non-negotiable. And the bank were just like, what? And he said, look, here. If you think that's legal, you take the $17 and I'll be on my way. So Patrick left the building a lot less of a rich man, but someone with a great story. And, you know, since then, Patrick's really used the story to his advantage. He's actually had a quite good public speaking career. He's actually the TV show Hard Copy that we mentioned, which said 90% of people thought he was innocent. He ended up being like a co-host on that for about three seasons. And then coming to about the 2010s, he released a book called Man One Bank Nil, which had been the headline of the San Jose Mercury about his uh, story during publicity. He said, Man One Bank Nil, and began trying to sell his book. And then he did Edinburgh Fringe Festival, telling his story, and did several tours of Broadway and Ireland, telling his story. So I think that uh, Patrick's done rather well out of this. I'd say he probably has even recouped the $95,000. But he doesn't really have a trust of bankers today and who can blame him? So yeah, this is the end of Patrick's story. Now, when I was researching Patrick, there's different accounts of what really happened. This story happened in 1995. And I think the story he told in 1995 was probably the closest to the truth. Because, you know, when he started in 1995, he was like, I had six grand in my bank account and I was poor. And then suddenly he did a YouTube video and he was like, I barely had pennies in my bank account. The thing about this story I'd question is, does the letter of apology exist? Because I've looked online 
And Patrick shared an awful lot of the documents that he's gotten from different people. So the bank sent him a check. He's got a picture of the check. He's got a picture of like ATM receipts. He's got a picture of all notices sent by the bank. But he's never shown a picture of the apology as far as I've seen. So I would say maybe because the bank has never released an official statement. This is just something that he's embellished to make a bit of a better story. So this is the end of our episode, guys. We were kind of talking about scams. And then we were talking about someone who took money from a scammer. But in the end, he didn't really take money from a scammer. It was more taking money from a bank. And you know, I know a lot of people aren't really the most fond of bankers. But in my opinion for this story, like Patrick's kind of putting himself as a Robin Hood character. Oh, I took money from a bank as a joke. But I was always going to return it. But... You know, at different points, he's like, well, I would have kept the money. And just like, yeah, yeah, I suppose you're the good guy because you gave the money back. But there is something about him, like, you know, he does seem quite charming. But you're just like, dude, if you had gotten away with it, you'd have totally pocketed 95 grand. You totally would. And use the situation to your advantage. But I still think it's like a really good story. As for the scams, like, I hope you enjoyed these, like, I've always been very interested in scams and like how people can be tricked. So this was just something I wanted to bring into the episode rather than just tell the story of Patrick because they were loosely linked and I thought here this is something we could talk about. I've got another story to do of scams so we might make this as a two-parter at some point. I don't think it's the next planned episode but we'll see what we can do. So I'm recording this on uh, Monday. Hopefully I have this out by the end of Monday so I can say, here, I had like three episodes in 14 days. If not, you'll probably be listening to this on Tuesday. I'd say things will go well enough. I mean, yeah, I've enjoyed recording this episode. Yeah, um, thanks very much for listening. If you want to support Scapegoat, what you can do to help me is you can go on to iTunes or whatever your podcast app is. You go to five-star rating and then say like, you know, something nice. That would be great. If you don't want to do that, that's fine. It's a weird thing that like the more comments that you get, I think the higher up lists you go. So you could be a podcast with very little listens, but like a lot of like positive reviews and you'll be a very highly rated podcast. Thanks very much for listening, guys. This has been me talking about scams. Uh, Contact me at scapegoatpodcast at gmail.com. Contact me at scapegoatpod on Twitter. I've been Luke. You've been awesome. Stay cool, guys. Bye.